0: Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I've had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100-plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast, In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, on your favorite platform, and to my Substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you.
1: We have not ever reckoned with what actually happened on this land to Mm. make us who we are today. So we look at days like January 6th. We look at voter suppression and voter subversion that's happening. Jesus says, I am the truth. Mm. To crush the truth is to crush Jesus. To embrace the truth is to embrace Jesus. Mm. 70% of Americans claim Christian faith. And yet we're fine not knowing the truth. And there's no way for us to become a different society, to do differently without knowing how we broke the world, without knowing how these hierarchies of human belonging that we, have, we established through law from, from 1619 forward, from fortune's days for, to right now, Um, Mm. We can't stop the patterns if we don't reckon with them.
0: Hi, this is Frank Schaefer, and you are watching and or listening to my podcast In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. Um, We talk to guests who do all sorts of interesting things and a number of authors over the over the weeks and months. Um, today, we have someone who uh, I know and who uh, is a leader in her field, and that is Lisa Sharon Harper. She's author of a new book called Fortune. This is what it looks like. I'm going to read the subtitle in a second, but I want to show you that I've got the actual book here. And uh, the subtitle is How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Restore It, Repair It All. I should have put my reading glasses on. <laughs> that's pathetic, isn't it? I mean, if I can, not that's big copy down there and I'm squinting at it. So, you know, we, it's a sad statement, but anyway, um, welcome, Lisa, before we get into the book, let's just locate you. Um, I know that probably when I first met you somewhere, I forget where, maybe the Wild Goose Festival or Red Letter Christians or something, you were doing things with Sojourner Magazine, and I know you've written for them. Let's just talk a little bit about, not this book at first, but your path as a writer and commentator. You do a lot of things. Let's just do the writer-commentator part. You've got some other books. You've written a lot of articles. Tell us a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, my very first book was written in New York City before I joined Sojourners called Evangelical Does Not Equal Republican or Democrat. I think you would appreciate that. Um, and it was 2008, running up to the 2008 election is when it came out. And um, the next one, I mean, there's been, there's been several books. And then I joined the Sojourners team in 2011 as their director of mobilizing and eventually became their chief church engagement officer. So the person out there in the world trying to connect Sojourners with the rest of the church. Um, and in that time, I, I loved my, my time there because it really placed me in the center of a lot of the the places where this question of race is clashing in the world. Mm -hmm. I flew to Ferguson and was responsible for helping to organize the multi-ethnic church to engage in the hands-up, don't shoot movement. Um, And then Baltimore, helping churches, again, multi-ethnic and white churches, to engage in that movement there. Um, And then finally, um, after leaving Sojourners after six really awesome years, powerful years, um, marched in, uh, in Charlottesville in witness of another way of being together in the world um, uh, and stood face, you know, literally face-to-face with a militia man um, singing, singing This Little Light of Mine for, <laughs> for hours before all the mayhem broke out. And mm. so the, my path has been one of um, placing my body as a living witness of another way of being in the world. And over the last 30 years, I've been doing all this family research and also, of course, research just as a journalist and as a as a commentator. Rather, Um, I started realizing my family history is really intersecting with a lot of the moments where America is making its decisions about how we will live together, Mm -hmm. according to racial hierarchy. So I realized my family story is more than my family story. It's all of our story. So that's why I needed to write it down.
0: You know uh there's a lot of this in the book, but I want to dig into it just in an interview format first, and then you can mention what's in the book and what's not but um tell me a little bit about your family. You know a lot of my writing is semi biographical I've written memoirs and novels based on my growing up in evangelical community, and I tend to write both fiction and nonfiction like I hope most writers do based on what you know something about um Talk to me about your mom your dad, your family, who your parents were, what sort of people they were, what did they do? Don't, you know, no one's read the book yet. It's coming out uh, in a couple of days. I I won't, you know, mention a day because sometimes our podcast is a little later, but we're recording this just before it comes out. I got an advanced copy. Thank you very much. Um, But tell me about your family. You know, my thumbnail would be my dad was an evangelical minister. He became very famous in the evangelical community. My own journey has taken me away from that community you know, uh, first question, are you still sort of the person you were raised to be? Would, they rec- would you recognize yourself, uh, your, your 12-year-old self, your 15-year-old self, or are you a very different kind of person now, not age-wise, but just where do you no, come I, from? Who are you? I
1: hear, I hear you. I think my mom um, was a member of SNCC here in Philadelphia. Um, she joined SNCC, at, I think, at 17, 18 years old, right after graduating from high school, my dad had investigated CORE, um, the Congress on Racial Equality um, in, in New York City, literally visited meetings and, and tend, attended meetings the same summer of um, the Freedom Summer where um, Mickey Schwerner and, and Michael Goodwin, um, Goodman w- went down to Mississippi and were assassinated along with James Cheney. Um, mm. It was a, a time that was... Uh, America was in upheaval, much like it is today. And my aunt, my parents um, chose to be a part of the push. And after that, my mom became a judge of elections here in, in Philadelphia, up in the West Oak Lane area, and took me around with her, literally, like we went knocking door to door to make sure that our neighbors were signed up to vote. So she's very, very civically minded and engaged. And that was, and we watched Roots about a million times, you know, it came yeah, out. Yeah when I was about eight or nine years old. And I literally just sat down in front of the TV to watch it every single time it came out for about a decade after that. So I think I saw Roots about maybe 20 times and Aunt Kizzy became my, my Aunt Kizzy. Right. But I couldn't go back any further than, than like my grandmother for, all, yeah. for many years. And then finally started to do the research. And I have to say that I am more than my mom and my dad. Um, I am my great grandmother, Lizzie who left South Carolina when um, the post-reconstruction laws levied, levied um, a, a boom on the black community, saying that they could not work in any industries other than um, the fields or the houses. As, mm. as um, which is very much like the, the they were trying to re- recreate slavery. And she said, "I'm out." But she only took her lightest-skinned daughter, um, and the other darker-skinned children, my, my grandmother among them, was left. Behind, they were left behind to. Uh, so that she could establish herself by passing, um, in Philadelphia. She was eventually found out, did send for her darker children. And my grandmother, she would not speak of her years in South Carolina because they were so horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and we were impacted by that. She was depressed for much of her life because of her experience in, um, in Jim Crow South. Um, I am my, my third time great grandmother Leah who, was born in 1836 or 35. I think it's 80, 1836. She lived through um, slavery. She was enslaved. She lost, we believe, about five children that are just completely lost to oblivion. Um, and that was like that morning, that, that, that familiarity with loss was passed down in my family and impacted Mm. further generations. But there was also an amazing resilience that was passed down. Fortune herself, Fortune who the book is named after, um, was born in 1687 and her body and soul and mind absorbed the wrath of the very first race laws. Um, And those race laws were crafted in order to deal with the perceived problem on the ground of mixed race Mm. children. And she, of which she was one, so she was indentured until 31 because her mother was white and not enslaved because her mother was white because that's how the laws had worked by that time. And her sis, her daughter, Betty, um, she owned land. She was, or she was free and owned land in Maryland um, by 1756. And it's recorded that she never paid the extra tax that, that was levied on free black women there was an actual black tax on free black women. And she came out to the tax collector and said, I'm not paying. And they actually recorded it in their, <laughs> in their journal. And you can find that recording now. So I think that there's, there's, there are strategies of resilience and rebellion that I have also garnered from my family that I'm very proud of. The fact that my grandma, my mother was a part of Snake. the fact that, Lizzie came north and left everything behind because she knew that she was worth more than working in the fields or in some white man's house. Um, to,
0: to give to give people a little bit of the flavor of the book, before I get into the t- table of contents and start asking you things, um, sure. do you have a copy handy? I do. Okay, pull, take a look at it a second because I want you to do something and I didn't prepare you for this. It's not difficult, okay. by the way. It's a ni- <laughs> It's a nice thing. It's not a this oh, is not good. a trick. <laughs> okay. No I'm going to put my glasses on and I want you to open your book to the photograph signature in the middle.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: And the first one is Lee Ballard.
1: Yeah, Leah Ballard.
0: Leah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can you can assume I'm going to mispronounce ten, 20, okay. 30, 40% of the names here. <laughs> er, Ernie, my producer's laughing. He helps me do this, right? I've had him phonetically spell out the guest's name. You know, 10 minutes into the interview, I'm still screwing it up. But I, I actually <laughs> am a dyslexic. So you know what I'm saying here. Um, I think a good way to get a handle on your book. Yes, you're holding it up. And it is. Here's mine. Here we are. Mirror, mirror image. Um, let's go through these pictures in the middle. I like photo sections, signatures. Let's talk about each of these people as you turn the page. Talk me through this and I will hold it up as you do. Because I think a good, way, a good way to get into this book is through these pictures for someone just thinking. If you're in a bookstore, I'm thumbing through it. Let's thumb through the book together. Yeah, tell, me, exactly. tell me about these guys.
1: All right. So Leah was the last enslaved woman in our family. Um, yes. She likely had 17 children, but only 12 are listed on any census. And when I did the research, I found that one in three women, sorry, one in three children in the low country of, of South Carolina, enslaved children, did not survive past their first birthday. Yeah. That blew my mind. That just gives you such a picture of the degradation that they experienced. Now she was in the high country there. One in three children didn't make it past their 16th birthday. Yeah. Okay. So it is very possible that, and also many of the children, especially around the time when she was, she was in her prime birthing years, just before the civil war, uh, many of the children were being sold into the deeper South, into Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, the rest. And so we don't know, but we do know that there's DNA traces that go into Georgia. So that's more, very likely that they were. So five of her children were lost. Her other child, Martha, um, she, she gave birth to Martha on the, um, as the Civil War was, was closing, um, coming to a close. And Martha ended up dying in childbirth because... There were no hospitals mm. that would take black people in South Carolina. So it was just her and the midwife. And that had been yeah. the case really since, since we, were, we were ever here never hospitals for us. So mm. we lost many women actually in our family to medical racism.
0: Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor. And subscribe to my Substack. it has to be said which can be found at frankschafer.substack.com you can subscribe for free or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able either way i'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation we have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward november of 2024 and every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. Yeah, let's talk about this person then. Yeah,
1: so this is my great-great-grandfather, Philip Fortune. So Philip Fortune was my first clue that something's up in our family because Philip, we found his name on the census before the civil war. And that's really, really, really rare in black families because it means that your ancestor was free before the civil war. And I was like, so how is Philip fortune free? I mean, why are we seeing him on the census? And it turned out that DNA now DNA clusters show us and also written genealogies of fortune game McGee that I talked about a little bit ago. they, They show us that we are connected to that family And ultimately it goes back to fortune game again. So I need to talk about fortune to talk about Philip. Um, Philip eventually moved to New York city from Virginia. He was in Virginia, but he moved to New York city. um, And he get this, he actually settled and lived in Brooklyn. And it turned out to be just blocks away from where my sister lives right now. And she had no idea, but they lived in the same area of Brooklyn. But so, Philip is a direct descendant from Fortune Game McGee and Fortune um, was born in 1687, only 23 years after the very first race laws were passed in the colony of, of Maryland. And Fortune was um, the product of an illegitimate, as they would call it, marriage, um, not, sorry, not marriage, union between Maudlin McGee and Ulster Scott mm. and Sambo Game. Sambo was his actual Senegalese name. And it meant second son. When I first heard that his name was Sambo, I was ashamed. I was like, yeah, I understand. Are you saying he was the original Sambo? Like, no, oh no. But actually, and that's actually what I found in my research is that there were many, many, many Sambos.
0: Yeah, it was a common name.
1: Very common. It just literally meant second son. And so that's why people of European descent, after the fall, of Re- well, the fall of Reconstruction, they then took that name Sambo and made it mean something yeah. uh, through propaganda that was very twisted and, and, and yeah. um, denigrating. But the original name was actually one of honor. So Sambo and Maudlin got together, had, um, they had an affair, and they had fortune. And fortune um, stood before a court in 1705. And um, that court then judged her to be um, worthy of being indentured uh, for, until she was 31. Now get this, she had children in the midst of her indenture to Mary, Mary Day. Mary Day was a noble class woman who was granted basically all of Southern Maryland um, by Lord Baltimore and fortune lived on her land. And there is now to this day a game road on that land that I stood on. I believe this is the road where the game family lived Hmm. where Fortune and her children lived for many years because many generations were indentured to this family but she ended up being indentured for seven more years and her children indentured until 21. Just just
0: pause for a minute and explain the difference between indenture and slavery.
1: That's good, thank you. So indenture is basically slavery with a time limit. That's all it is.
0: Okay, but there, you're not—you're still not getting paid, and you're not cared for any better. You're basically no. a slave, but for a period of time.
1: For a period of time, at some point, you will be set free, right? That's at least according to the law, not necessarily in practice. Sure, that often happened to black people. Um, so indenture was the original um, system that they had of exploiting labor and in, in, on this land um, in the colonies. Hmm. And so, when people came over in sixteen nineteen, six, sorry, sixteen nineteen, they weren't usually actually enslaved. Some of them were; others were indentured. The, the system of enslavement happened with these very first race-based slave enslavement happened with these very first race laws.
0: Hmm.
1: So do you mind me just taking a moment to explain those laws?
0: Yes, go ahead. But I remember, I just want to keep going through these pictures. I know.
1: I know. I know. Let me, get to, Harri- Let me get to
0: Harriet Smith in a minute.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. So, but this is really important because it's fundamental.
0: No, no, no. Go ahead. I'm just joking around. <laughs> in
1: 1662, Virginia perceives that it has a problem on the ground. And I realized in the research, laws don't happen out of the blue. They don't happen because somebody Mm. decides, oh, this is how we should be living today. This is a good way to live. No, they happen because they are trying to solve a problem on the ground. And in Virginia, they were trying to solve the problem of mixed race children coming from unions of white men raping enslaved black women. That's the bottom line. And so they were, so they said, The problem was because Elizabeth key, this woman who was born in 1636, she took her case to court in 1650 and said, my dad is an English citizen. And so therefore should not be able to be enslaved. I mean, I, and so therefore I am an English citizen. So I shouldn't be able to be enslaved. Oh, and by the way, I was baptized. I'm a Christian and by English common law, you don't, you don't enslave another Christian. Hmm. So I need to be set free. And she won. And then a lot of other people followed What was that their date N1. again?
0: I, you that blew was, by it, but I, I didn't pick it up. No Say it Six, again.
1: 1650.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's early.
1: Really early, right? So it's only, what, 42 years after the beginning of, of the of the colony, of Virginia colony. Yeah. So, so she wins her case in court and a lot of other people win their cases in court. And then about 12 years later, 1662, the legislature has, like, they're suffering all these people winning their cases. They should not be enslaved because- citizenship status comes through the line of the father, according mm-hmm. to English law in this English colony. So they, could, they had a couple of choices here. They could have said, you know, we're gonna phase this, this slavery thing out. We're just gonna go with injustice light, right? We're gonna, we're gonna actually do the indenture thing. We're gonna let people work their way into freedom and, and then we're not gonna do this anymore. That would have been injustice light per mm-hmm. se, right? They didn't do that instead they did what they do they still do to this day they simply changed the law they they just simply said okay you think you should be free because English because citizenship comes through the father and now you're a citizen and you can't be enslaved okay we'll change where citizenship comes from it shall henceforth be according to roman law and it will go according to the line of the mother and in perpetuity, they added those two words, which created race-based slavery. So if your mother was Black and, and enslaved, then you too shall be enslaved and not a citizen so able to be enslaved.
0: Yeah, so and, given, and just emphasizing race. again, given the fact that those pregnancies were from rape and Rapes. it's it was always going to be the, the, the mother because basically it's all white men. The problem only arises when the master's raping his servant. It's not from the other way around. So, well, you know,
1: except in, in Maryland, it was. Yeah. So let's let's talk about Maryland because that's where that's where fortune was. So two years later, yeah, in 1664, Maryland has a perceived that the General Assembly has a perceived problem on the ground, and their perceived problem was Ulster Scots women and Irish women who were indentured servants right alongside enslaved Black men falling in love. With these enslaved black men Mm. and marrying them and having children in the context of marriage that are mixed race so two problems they perceive from this one it's a challenge to white male supremacy and then two what do they do with all these mixed race kids are they free or are they enslaved so their answer to this by the way there were 600 mixed race kids that were born Mm. in the midst of the colonial era in, in maryland and delaware alone right so this is a real problem they're trying to solve So they say, this is how we're going to solve this problem. You're going to, okay, so just hold on to your seat, Frank. This will kill you. If a white woman shall marry a black man who is enslaved, henceforth, she herself shall be enslaved to the husband's master until the husband's death. And her children will be enslaved in perpetuity. So what did that tell me? It told me two things. One, wow, like white women are only white in so much as they support white men. If they don't support white men, they may as well be black because they will Mm. be enslaved. That was the attitude towards white women and really has been ever since to some degree um, among the ruling class of white men. And so, and second, you have, you have, the in perpetuity, so this is actually about economics. It's actually about getting free labor so that they can make their tobacco and and other plantations work um, and work for a profit in perpetuity. So a few years later, um, the planter class, or sorry, the, the legislators who are actually the planter class, they realize, oh my gosh, people are beginning to take advantage of this and force their white indentured women to marry enslaved black men And so what do they do? They put the keys of indenture or enslavement into the hands of the church and the church becomes the auction block. The church becomes the the arbiter, the the holder of the key and the leveler of the oppression. And this
0: this is in Maryland.
1: This is in Maryland, and but it yeah. spreads because that's how things happen yeah, in those sure. original colonies. It And the church being the, the church
0: colonies. being what at that point? Who? What? What church are we talking about?
1: We're talking about the Episcopal. Actually, most of the churches, but Episcopal and Catholic. Yeah. So the Episcopal, especially in Maryland, and Catholic churches, they literally had the most accurate records of indenture and enslavement. Mm. Um, all the way through the, co- the colonial era. It only changed with the revolution. And then it just became entrenched and federalized.
0: Let's go back to the pictures for a minute here. Okay. And, and um, I'm gobstruck by the, the history lesson here. I mean, there's so much here I don't know. And I don't think most people listening to this know. And you know, you consider yourself fairly well-informed, which Writer Well talks about that, you know, say no more in terms of the value of this book, because essentially... Um, you know, you always are thinking, well, don't we sort of know this? No, we don't know any of this. So yeah. thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go to Harriet here for a minute and talk yeah. about her.
1: I love Harriet. So is, Harriet, have I got the right
0: picture up here. Yeah, that's, that's right. right.
1: That's right. Okay. Let's talk so, about
0: Harriet for a minute.
1: Harriet right there is we think she's holding a pipe because we were told Harriet smoked a pipe.
0: Right? Yeah.
1: Um, Harriet is the wife of Henry Lawrence, who we don't have a picture of. Um, Henry and Harriet Lawrence um, lived, Henry was born uh, in 1842, and he's another person on my mother's line who was free before the Civil War.
0: And and just talk to me again about Harriet in terms of your mother's line. How far away are we here from your mom?
1: So Harriet is my second great-grandmother, Okay, my mother's first great-grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. And Harriet was living in the 19... early 1900s 1908 1909 when they went to her um her place 1999 not 1909 it was like 19 teens when they went to her place and my grandfather took pictures of her there so that was yeah I was, was going to ask because
0: you know when I look at the the first picture here uh, these first two pictures I'm always interested when I look at the pictures of enslaved yeah. people
1: yeah.
0: or indentured people you know who took the picture how did yeah. it get preserved do you have any knowledge about that? Yeah. Can you just mention something because I know that it's a footnote of a footnote, but it's fascinating to me.
1: It is fascinating. Actually, a lot of these pictures were taken by my grandfather. Mm. So Leah Ballard and Philip Fortune's pictures—we don't know who took those pictures. It's yeah. unknown. Um, it's just been passed down in the family. I literally have her actual photo, photograph, in my on my on my. Um, on my wall, my family wall downstairs in the living room. I mean, my in in family.
0: terms of your family here, because I'm not a geneticist, mm-hmm. so I'm not going to try this. What is what is the through line here? Because there are white people in your family, there's black people in your family. somewhere you know, come through this process in Maryland and Virginia, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just curious. Uh, who were your what race were your parents? Your parents, your your parents, we you're black.
1: They, they were themselves both of them Okay, then black. When,
0: when you get to these some of they were both black, and then Hiram here and Ella, um, just talk about them for a second because uh, you know, yeah, I, I can't tell from that picture too much yeah. about them. Just yeah. tell me who they were.
1: So okay, Harriet Smith was the wife of Henry Lawrence. right. Um, their, their son. Was Hiram Lawrence, hmm. who you're looking at in that picture right now. Right, Hiram married Ella Fortune.
0: Yes, okay. whose
1: line goes directly back to Fortune Game McGee. Yeah,
0: right? exactly.
1: So that's where that comes from. Yeah,
0: and, and I was curious because you have uh, there are people here. There's interracial couples here in this in in your mm-hmm. story. And I was just trying to figure out which ones were, were which, so were which, and who, who married whom and what it, whether it was any, you know, when, uh, you know, Hiram and, and all these other people showed up at what period of history were we at in terms of what happened with yeah, people of mixed race and all the rest of it.
1: So here you're, what you're looking at, when you're looking at, at Harriet yeah. and also Hiram, right. So, but let's, focus on harriet for a minute yes if you're looking at the period of history that is the cherokee trail of tears yes the, right. the um choctaw trail of, Te- um, trail of yes. tears um the the chickasaw trail of tears I mean, all of that right so we believe and it's been told in our story that that line of the family it was really just said the lawrences they didn't say whether it was henry or harriet so yeah. we always assumed it was henry But now come doing some DNA and actually we're realizing it's not Henry. It was Harriet who was likely the one who was um, Chickasaw and Cherokee, according to our family story. But here's the thing. I don't claim membership in any, any native nation because we can't. And the reality is, is that they did not walk the trail of tears. And according to the the colonists, according to our government, you could not claim native American citizenship. Unless your people actually obeyed their removal and yeah. made it to the end and signed up on the Dawes rolls at the end. So we're not on the Dawes rolls. So we, there's no way for us to claim anything. So they were absolutely cut off from, if it is true that they were Cherokee and Chickasaw, they were cut yeah. off from their people forevermore. And then they began to be listed as. Yeah, that that's that's Hiram sitting there talking, and they would. He made it a regular practice to go out into the marshland in Elmwood, Philadelphia, where where he owned a whole block of homes, um, in the mid 20th century, and he would tell the stories. He would tell that tell his grandchildren. My but mom I have a question, because
0: when I look at this picture, and he's got his grandchildren. Yeah, and uh, that's my little, mom and my uncle. Yeah, your uncle is, is quite dark skinned, and your mom and him. And I'm looking at the date 1948, and of course, in big chunks of America, lynching is happening, yeah. and it's not a friendly time for anybody, let alone a mixed-raced family. Yeah, talk a little bit about that because um, you know it's amazing to see a picture of a grandfather sitting with his his child uh, uh, in a in at that period, obviously so comfortable with them. Yeah. You know, and as a grandfather myself, I relate very co- closely to that picture. I like that picture. talk Aww. just talk about that picture, talk about that relationship and talk about what it was like to be a white grandfather of' uh, I'm walking along holding a little black boy's hand.
1: Well, he did not at all consider himself white. He did yeah. not consider himself. I want to make that clear.
0: I'm just judging was, by the picture and the way yeah, if you were walking. Yeah, but what I'm saying is if you it, knowing what the temper of the times were, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're just walking by or driving by in your Model T Ford or whatever, you look mm-hmm. over there, this is not, you know, it looks different. Like a weird the- family. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> like, talk about that.
1: So when I, when I was growing up, I asked my grandma, what are we?
0: Mm. Um,
1: I said, you know, cause I, on the playgrounds, my friends would say, oh, I'm part Cherokee. I'm part, you know, everybody's usually part Cherokee. Right. And so one yeah. time I went back to my grandmother and I said, what are we? And she said, we're black. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that my grandmother was left behind by her mother, who was an octoroon. She was only one eighth black. She was seven eighths white and Jewish according to the family story, right? So, and also according to DNA, my mom, the little girl sitting there technically is literally, literally according to DNA, DNA tells her she's 50% white and 50% black, right? But both of her parents identified as black. Yeah. And that's because that's the way it was. It was the one drop thing. Lizzie was black in South Carolina. Yes. And she lived surrounded by the family who owned her family just two generations before. So she had to run north. She had to go north in order to escape slaveocracy, in order to escape them knowing hmm. that that's her class, the slave class. Yes. So when she came north, she passed. She passed for white in order to establish herself. But get this, she yeah, left yeah. She left Willa, my grandmother, behind because she was too dark. She would ruin the illusion. And when she finally passing, established yeah. herself as a waitress at the Grand Hotel in the center of Philadelphia, yeah. um, and they didn't have black waitresses, she finally then sent for my grandmother. And my grandmother never spoke about it. never spoke about the South again. We believe she might have been raped down there. We believe yeah. that, that something um, awful. Something awful happened, and so she never went back. And yeah. and and when I asked her, "What are we?" because everybody else was talking about how they were Cherokee, she said, "We're yeah. black." And when I went back a second time, she said, "Okay, I'll tell you. We are part Native American, but never tell anybody that we are because they'll think you're trying to pass for white, hmm. right?" So I never did.
0: Well, and, and that's a I... wrinkle that I would have never guessed at in a million years. I mean, you know, you <laughs> have to be in that to think of that I'm, in no... that community. Why would I, you know, that's just amazing to me. Let me um, just pause here for a minute and say that you are watching and or listening to, if you're listening to the podcast, in conversation with Frank Schaefer. And my guest today is Lisa Sharon Harper, who's author of a new book called Fortune, whose subtitle is How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. I want to jump way ahead in this process now and ask you about something. And that is, um, I don't want to miss this i want to jump into part three the repair the truth telling is reckoning reparation is repentance forgiveness in the beloved community and by the way everybody i know that we're jumping ahead in the story guess what you can buy the book okay (laughs) (laughs) so we're not going to give it all away here but i want to get to i want to get to your philosophical yeah we're not going to show you all the pictures and not tell the whole story (laughs) you're just going to have to buy the damn book and that's it Mm -hmm. um Let me, let me, I'm going to take you through these. And if I cut you off, it's not because I'm being bumptious. I'm just watching the clock here. Sure. Um, So I'm going to ask you to go through truth telling first and as a reckoning reparation as repentance and forgiveness and the beloved community. And I want to make sure we do this part in a little more depth than just skimming. So first of all, talk to me about what you mean by truth telling as reckoning.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We have not ever reckoned with what actually happened on this land to mm. make us who we are today. So we look at days like January 6th, we look at what's happening with the voting voter suppression and voter subversion that's happening. Yeah, because right I just want to say one country. thing to,
0: to the to the viewer and the listener. The book takes us through the Trump period, it talks about the white nationalism, Christian nationalism. You know, if you haven't read the book, you don't know this yet. but. The context is like this minute speaking yes. of which footnote here when did you close out the manuscript because i was trying to figure out when you wrote the last word based on what you include in the book which is trump and the the whole thing um
1: the the manuscript was finished manuscript was finished lord i mean you know with all with all of the different revisions probably around sure. summer last year
0: Yeah, that's what I figured, because you're sort of up to the minute. You're almost bringing us to that point. Okay, let me get back to this then. Truth telling is reckoning, and I won't interrupt you again.
1: That's okay. So Jesus says, I am the truth. Hmm. To crush the truth is to crush Jesus. To embrace the truth is to embrace Jesus. Hmm. 70% of Americans claim Christian faith, and yet we're fine not knowing the truth. And there's no way for us to become a different society, to do differently without knowing how we broke the world, without knowing how these hierarchies of human belonging that we, have, we established through law from, from 1619 forward, from fortune's days for, to right now, um, mm. we can't stop the patterns if we don't reckon with them.
0: Can so I jump true. in one thing there? I'm listening sure. yesterday to an interview with a writer for the New Yorker who works for the New York Times, detailing the number of states and laws being passed to stop the teaching of American history that's offensive to when I say white exactly. people. And of course, that's ridiculous. I don't mean white people like everybody to me and okay. so forth. Okay. I mean to the segment of white nationalist Christians. So I can't I can't skip the fact that your book is actually being published in the context Mm -hmm. of an attack on not just free speech, but we have to teach both sides of the Holocaust, according to one law. Like, what's the other side? I'm not sure what that would be. We've got to teach both sides of slavery. Uh, Mouse, (laughs) this this picture book about the Holocaust is being removed. Right. There's laws in Texas and a number of other states allowing parents to now bring suits against teachers and school boards for teaching material they don't like. Okay, I'm not going to go on and on. That's
1: right. But
0: the context in which you're publishing this book is not neutral.
1: That's right. It's not like,
0: this is different. I mean, we're in a period here that probably when you started thinking about these things, I'm sure you did not even envision a time when Republican legislatures all over the country are Actually making laws now essentially saying if this book shows up in your school district, we're gonna ban it.
1: That's right. And And we're gonna
0: sue the teacher for teaching it.
1: That's right. Do you know? I just found out, um, you know, I I think I can actually name her Kristen Dumay on Mm. a podcast that that I that I'm doing, not the Freedom Road podcast, but a new one that I'm doing. She actually came out and said that she knows of a teacher that was fired for assigning the very good gospel. Yeah, in their classroom and a grade school like mm. fired because the very good gospel challenges white supremacy with the power of the gospel itself so right. imagine now fortune which is really explicit history from the ground up incredibly researched over 30 years i know somebody gonna ban this book i mean somebody gonna ban it because yeah. it's a threat it's a threat to the narrative and that's yeah the because thing. i
0: mean the last thing we want to know is about this These facts, these are not convenient. So let's get back to truth telling Mm -hmm. as reckoning, not just as a subject, but in this context where truth telling is now subject to being banished Mm -hmm. and individual teachers open to lawsuits modeled on the Texas anti-abortion law where private citizens can harass now not abortion providers, but teachers who are teaching black history they don't like.
1: Yeah. that's I mean, talk
0: about truth telling and as a reckoning in that context.
1: Well, let me just say people of African descent in America are what make America America, Mm. that we would not have democracy without the struggle for, for black freedom in America. Democracy landed on our soil with the passage of the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments. Mm. And it is those amendments that are actually being challenged by this white Christian nationalist movement. And Dr. King said it best actually in his last book. It's also right over my shoulder. Where do we go from here? Um, he wrote it in 1967. This is what he mm. said. He said the segregationist, today we would read white Christian nationalists, the segregationist would rather have an American form of fascism than democracy if democracy required equality. And that is exactly what's happening. That's why those books are being banned mm-hmm. because we are finally, we finally are at a moment where people are telling their own stories and that is democratizing the narrative. Mm-hmm. And that is a threat to their power because fascism de- requires control of the narrative. And that's how they're trying to control the narrative. Mm-hmm. So democracy itself is is at peril through the banning of these books literally this is this is one of the mile markers on the road to fascism and so this is coming out at that time and what i say is that in order for us to repair what race broke in the world to take make an about turn away from fascism we have to do a deep interrogation of the narratives that we have been shaped by Mm -hmm. we have to do some truth seeking we have to do some truth listening. We have to then do some truth telling, telling the truth. That's the only way for us to even begin to understand what happened so that we can repair it. And the first thing I say is for people of, of European descent and African descent and all the people, all the um, BIPOC people, we all need to do our family histories. Why? Because family history has the power to subvert those, those alternative narratives that are coming from the alt-right, or even quite honestly, from our history books that only tell sure. part of the
0: story. Well, and going back to the Texas Text- textbook commission, I mean, this has been going on a long time, but now yes. again, bears repeating, it's being formalized for the first time with uh, a now being unleashed on teachers and school boards. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just an amazing moment. Now that brings us directly to reparation and repentance, because yeah. obviously, and I, this is this is a hard question for you to answer, but when I read a book, I always wonder, okay, who the, who's this book for? And of course, one of the frustrating truths of history is that often the people who should be reading a book and being convinced by it are the ones who will not. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about reparation and repentance, the repentance part is not possible unless, in, in terms of who you're reaching, unless mm-hmm. people who we would not expect to read this book read it. How? What is the expectation? I'm not saying you should know that's this the the answer question. to this because this is an open-ended question that I think about my own writing all the time. Who am I actually yeah. reaching with this? Who doesn't already agree with me? Mm-hmm. Especially since we're all living in these bubbles now.
1: Right. Though well, that. Well, I'll tell you, the algorithm does make a difference, and so that's one of the reasons why I'm really hoping that this this message will get out beyond the bubble. That other that other white folk. Who have family members who mm. live in the other bubble will share the book, will share the stories with them. Yes. And maybe they'll be able to, 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 to break <clears throat> the bubble.
0: Well, so and I think you're on to something because we're much more likely to read stories than yes. we are. The story yes. of a family that is well written, like yours is, is more likely to break some barriers than just a didactic you know, screed on what you ought to all be doing and and so forth and so on. So go ahead. Yeah, that
1: was the reasoning behind writing this family story as opposed to just the last three chapters. So reparation is really about repairing the relationship Hmm. that broke and the relationship in order to repair it. You got to know when did it break and how did it break? It broke the moment that those first explorers landed on the coast of Africa and said by edict of the, of the Pope, the Pope Nicholas V, we have the right to claim this land and enslave your people because you are not civilized. Hmm. They failed to recognize the image of God in the people that they were, they were staring back at them. And get this, you know, Captain Cook, not Hook, but Cook in yes. Australia landed on that soil and said, looked at all the indigenous people and said, there's nobody here. Yeah. So that was the terra nullius. This is nobody's land. Um, hello, there were hundreds of nations on that land. So when you look at a person and say you are a non-person, that's the point of the break. And so yeah. what does it look like then to fix it? It looks like to recognize the personhood, to recognize the inherent dignity, to recognize the call of God, the divine call to exercise stewardship of the world, to exercise agency, to shape the world, And so that looks like in terms of reparation, calling on our leaders to go to the impacted people and ask them, what do you say is required for things to be made well for you? Mm -hmm. So that we can be good in our relationship that will repair the relationship and it will restore their call and capacity to exercise stewardship even over Mm -hmm. this moment.
0: Yeah, I'm going to jump to the one here, forgiveness in the beloved community. But before I do, I just want to ask you a question. As someone who's very thoughtful and um, has been around the block on a lot of these issues, it, it seems to me uh, to take the big, big, big picture in which your the context in which your book is launched. You know, we tend to see things all in terms of North America and slavery and indentured right. servitude and so forth here. But of course, the problem is global. Yes. Um, you know, we, nobody's off the hook on this. Um, in addition to which, just as your book is being published in the very framework of new laws by Republican controlled legislatures, actually banning books and putting teachers and schoolbirds at risk for even teaching books like yours, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. The other context is a global context in which the Uyghurs in China are being persecuted. Right in which uh, Saudi Arabia continues to spread a Wahhabist form of Islam that is both racist and sexist, Mm -hmm. in which uh, Hungary is tilting toward the far right, in which Poland is now legislating against telling the truth about the Holocaust because it makes the Poles look bad. In which Britain has tilted to the right and is under the, the 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 direction of a buffoon who took them out of the European market. In other words, the, mm-hmm. the guy, collective idea is being pushed back against, mm-hmm. and in which probably our next president is going to be Donald Trump, unless Don- no. Democrats Don't can get their that act into together. The world.
1: Do not speak that into Democrats the world. Unless can- Democrats no.
0: Hey, no. Biden's been in, had one year and and Democrats are already fighting amongst themselves and preventing further legislation. You know, I'm not saying I think it'll happen, but these are really serious times. So my serious. question to you, besides holding forth here for a second, is this, and that is, how does your narrative, mm-hmm. your mi- micro-narrative of one family, yeah, yeah. Okay? fit yeah. in with a, two things. First of all, your book is an anti-fascist statement. Yes, it is. Okay.
1: 100%. The context
0: in which it is being published is a context in which fascism is making a resurgence across the globe. Yes. We now have an Olympics going on in China, uh, Winter Olympics, which is essentially being run by people with the same ideology by someone who's made a personality cult there. It is very symbol, uh, sim- similar to the 1936 Olympics in Berlin.
1: Wow. We're in the
0: same fix again. Wow. So, the context in which your book's being published is where we are now, you know, going to the Olympics in a country that that smashes democracy, wow. and 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 in a global context in which fascism is on the rise, not democracy. Mm-hmm. So how how do you see that? I mean, forget your book for a minute. What's the context in which this book's being published, given your life struggle for these issues?
1: You know, back into in, in two thousand sixteen. Um, actually 2018, I started uh, the Freedom Road podcast. And one of the conversations you I wanted to say the name have- again?
0: You, you went through that quick. The Freedom Road oh, podcast.
1: Freedom Road podcast. Freedom Thank Road, you. okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, so I started that in 2018, still running, yeah. yay, um, yeah. January 2018. And the, one of the conversations I really desperately wanted to have was the impact of Russia in propagating Um, fascism around the country around the globe. Yes. And I believed it was my gut. I didn't have a bunch of evidence. I couldn't like write a book about it, but it was my gut that this is, it's not, it's not coincidence that, you know, the same year that Trump wins, um, we also have the whole um, thing happening in Australia. So they get, or very soon after that, they get um, a a Pentecostal leader from Prime Minister, who is also like a trumper, um, they it, it's not a mistake that Bolsonaro, you know, came into power and, and, uh, in the same time as the Trump rule. And um, guess who was his political advisor? Sure. Steve Trump. Bannon, Steve Bannon yeah. was his political advisor. Yeah. You know, it's not a coincidence. So I was thinking, there's too many dots here, we need to connect this. And my theory was that, that Russia is behind this. And do you know that just I don't know, in the last few months, I saw a news report that said Russia is behind this. <laughs> i'm like this makes sense and and why would russia do this because russia is trying to take down democracy that is why it is the cold war reborn that is the bottom line and the best way the best way the fastest way the surest way the way of all time to take down degrade corrupt democracy is through racial hierarchy because through racial hierarchy, then you actually then set up a two-tiered system or multi-tiered system where some people actually get to rule and the rest don't.
0: Well, they're doing it in China with the Han portraying themselves as the master race and even calling themselves that again. Exactly. I don't know so why we keep- it's not just keep...
1: a white thing. It's, yeah. it's a colonizing thing.
0: It's, yeah, but these, it's... I just want to stop for a minute and say, these are not authoritarian regimes. Give me a break. Russia and China are fascist regimes. Mm-hmm period. That's it. That's period. how they're being run. I don't care what they call themselves. That's a themselves. Good
1: way to put it. Yeah, that's, that's really the true. deal.
0: And so we have a big chunk of the globe is moving in that direction in the context of which
1: of my book Lisa
0: Sharon Hall. Harper publishes a book called yeah. Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Okay. So talk about that context. What's the a little hope? More.
1: Why would I do this? Why would I? Well, first of no. All I of think I there's
0: for... a lot of hope. I'm just saying to you <laughs> that I know, you know, you know, as you've just expressed that the context is is huge
1: yeah yeah these
0: are vivid moments
1: the reason why i think it's so important for us to be telling the truth right now Mm. to doing the work of repentance which is the work of reparation that's all reparation really is is repentance for the ways we broke the relationships and then to do the work of forgiveness ultimately Mm. um, for those things that cannot be repaired in order for our own healing is because There is no way forward without those three elements. Mm -hmm. And not only 70% of Americans claim to be Christians, but the majority of the world actually claims Christian faith. And many of these these nations that are um, experiencing the backlash of fascism coming back and trying to take hold actually have histories of christian faith that they well russia about.
0: being a case in point with the greek yes. with the russian orthodox church i mean you know exactly. i bet putin goes and lights his candles in the cathedral with the blessing of the bishop who's wearing a rolex yes I mean, there we go
1: and this is what we need to do we need to decolonize christian faith mm. christian faith itself has been and has been colonized from the time of constantine it has been interpreted in the halls of empire to reflect empire to justify empire and empire requires death for those who come under the thumb of it. Empire Mm -hmm. requires slavery for those who are going to be exploited by it. Empire requires the the crushing of the image of God on earth. So we have to like come back to the reality that Jesus was not of empire. Jesus was killed by empire. Jesus was a Brown colonized man from a serially enslaved people. And so every word that he said and every word written in the New Testament was written in the context of colonization by white supremacist Rome. So it's yeah, I, that,
0: I, I, wanna, that, I wanna just say one thing here and that is that I think that you know people listening to this and watching ought to know something. And the reason I gave that long key question on the context in which the book's being published, let me just say it again, and then I'm gonna make my point that I'm getting to here. Uh, Lisa's written a book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family in the World, and How to Repair It All. One way to see this book is a sort of a nice memoir, well-written about a terrible moment of our history, but a family's journey through it, slavery and indenture. It's interesting to people interested in Black history. It's interesting to people who are interested in this subject or who know Lisa or who like the writing. But I want to say something different. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And that is that the only way we are going to stand up against the fascism that we now face globally is by individually telling the stories that offer an alternative narrative and the truth. And this book is one of them. Okay, so it is not... The context I would give is a book in 1935 in in Germany telling the story of immigration and persecution and pogroms of some family that was moving from one of the Jewish ghettos in Poland into Germany at the time in a way that would touch people in Germany Mm -hmm. at a moment when they could still change their minds. We still have a moment in America we can change our minds. And this is an individual story that is in a global context, as important as anything you could read. Because Mm -hmm. in the microcosm of one family, we have the whole story of not only oppression, but forgiveness, reparation, and the way forward. So you know, if I could wave a wand, they'd be reading this in China and Saudi Arabia, and in Palestinian communities in Israel, and in in Tel Aviv, and all the rest of it. Because this is a global story, Lisa. Mm -hmm. It's a global story. It's not just your family it's thank a you. it's a It's a global story that needs to be told, so mm. um you know I want to thank you for writing the book, but I want to set the context because there's a lot of books that we talk about on this program that are are um of great interest and great import, but they don't tell a global story. Mm-hmm. This is a global story, and mm-hmm. uh, maybe yes. I'm choosing the wrong words, but it no, so, it represents no, it exactly something right. very, very big. so talk about that for a minute
1: yeah, I mean, chapter five. It actually takes it beyond the American soil because yes. the slave trade itself was a global trade. Yeah. And my own ancestors on my father's side came to the Western Hemisphere um, in a in a death ship called a slave mm. ship mm. and were landed on the island of Barbados, right? So an outpost of colonial England. One of the it was actually the first English colony. Hmm. And they were landed there in the year 1750, according to Ancestry.com DNA, and within one generation, they were sold into every island in the Lesser Antilles, hmm. every island in the Lesser Antilles. So the global slave trade actually makes pe- the African diaspora a global, a, a global story. Yes, um, because we didn't, we were not only you know taken to America, we were. We were removed from our land by most nations in Europe. Most Mm -hmm. empires in Europe had some level of investment, if not direct um, engagement with the slave trade. And so we're all mixed up in it. And it really had to do with that era of colonization in Europe. In in the book, I
0: remember reading you talking about some time you spent in South Africa. I think you were there in 2017, you were there. That's
1: right. 16 and 17.
0: Yeah, because I was there for a year in 1985 or six, let's see, maybe 87. My family was over there. We had the kids in school and so forth. I was catching the tail end of the apartheid era living there. Wow, just before Nelson Mandela got out. And, um, wow. but what was so interesting to me as someone who came out of a reformed Calvinist background is yes. talking to some of the white Christians there who were still justifying apartheid, even, even though they knew the handwriting was on the wall yeah. on a theological basis. And so, you know, when I talk about this being a global story of course it really is, but the way I meant it was not just that obviously slavery is a global story, right, right, right. but the loss of freedom And the the seesaw battle between democracy and fascism is now global. And by telling one story that is a warning finger in the air, Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of which way the wind blows, and the fact that not only can it happen here, it did happen.
1: Can I just say this real quick before we we close? It's also a global story because the theology that underpinned apartheid Hmm. did not come from Calvin's Switzerland. It came from American Calvinism.
0: That's interesting. They
1: were, you see what I'm saying? So what happened here actually influenced the world. Hmm. What we did with our reservations, our Native American reservations, is what they copied when they created the black townships Hmm. and and what Hitler copied when he created the ghettos, when he created the concentration camps. Those concentration camps were inspired, Hmm. horrible use of the word, but for lack of better language, inspired by Native American concentration camps before they removed them from the land. So it's a global story because ideas have gone around the world, evil ideas that have been put and actually then quote improved upon um, Mm. as they go and made more and more and more stringent. So those people in apartheid thought of themselves as improving on Jim Crow, making it even Even more effective. Right. Yeah. So it's a global story. And now what we see is we see the Trump, that that Trump era spreading across the world.
0: We do because we and are giving global encouragement global global to, to essentially an anti-democracy war movement yes. from Brazil to Hungary to, well, yes. China that he was making deals with Saudi Arabia, the whole bit.
1: Yeah. You know, wherever there was, said.
0: wherever there was a regime that was anti-democratic. They found comfort in the Trump presidency. Wherever there was a regime struggling to remain, you know, to, to, to preserve democracy and human rights, um, they're the Good people challenge. that he ignored and belittled.
1: That's exactly ma- ma- right. amazing
0: period we're in. So let me just talk uh, for a minute, Lisa. Um, the book has just come out, or just coming out, for those of you who watch in a, a little while in the podcast or want to think about this. Um, in our in our period of um, you know Zoom everything and not so much on the road <laughs> stuff. Are you gonna be out doing things? Are you are you resuming some of your busy speaking schedule and that kind of good stuff? When people get in touch with you, we're gonna post links, Ernie, my wonderful producer, will post links to everything. And um, uh, of course, so we don't even have to say who, who anybody who wants to get in touch with you will be able to through all those links or buy your book, which we will post the links and so forth and so on. Any, anything else we should know about that you're doing right now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, um, you can always follow um, the movement of this work through blackfortunemonth.com. Hmm. So, over the last, over the next month, the Black History Month, we have declared it Black Fortune Month. And this is the month to read the book, to discuss the book, and then to take action. So, at the end of the month, we're actually going to end on Capitol Hill talking with leaders about HR 40 and the TRHT Commission Act. Hmm. Um, HR 40 is that. House Resolution 40 after 40 acres and a mule that we never got, that economists now say, if we had been awarded those things after enslavement, we would not be needing to talk about reparations now. And mm. the Truth Healing, Truth and Racial Healing and Transformation Act is all about a, an actual truth commission in America in order to find out what will it take to make things well for people of African descent here. Mm. So we're going to be reading, discussing, and taking action at the end of the month. You can also find out more about the book at freedom, sorry, at fortunebook.com us
0: which of course we're we're going to post all this so if you weren't writing fast enough it's all going to be linked wherever this podcast is is posted and wherever our stuff goes and so forth and so on so uh let me wrap up by saying i'm frank schaefer um this is uh in conversation with frank schaefer my guest has been lisa sharon harper the book is fortune our race broke my family and the world and how to repair it all and just Just like i have to look at your subtitle even though i've read it a hundred times i've got to look at my own book cover and say i am the author of fall in love have children stay put save the planet be happy which is in Mm -hmm. bookstores everywhere um so please uh note that as well Mm -hmm. Uh, thank you so much lisa for everything you do um really nice to see you again even if it's at some distance here uh and i wish you really well with the book stay in touch we'll do we'll do some more on this you know when you have um things you want to talk about in terms of the rollout of this or what you're doing in Washington, please get in touch with Ernie and say, I'd like to be interviewed again and talk about this. And you can, you know, have the floor and say whatever you want on my platform.
1: Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. That's just
0: invite yourself back when you have have more. (laughs) I mean, I won't, I don't dare say when you have more to say, there's a whole book more to say, plus a lot of other stuff, but when (laughs) you want to make something happen.
1: I appreciate that. God bless you, my friend.
0: Much love. Bye-bye. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com.